We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with edible landscaper Aaron Urbanski about rethinking our relationship with the environment. Nowadays, you know, it's just, it's all about convenience and, you know, the globalized industrial food chain. But those systems are very fragile right now. Like, it keeps me up at night. I was a produce manager at Natural Groceries for a while. And back during those wildfires, the grapes came in smelling like smoke. The floods in 2019 blocked the highways. So the produce section was empty. And it was like, okay, this is our future. Like, this is not good. We got to, like, localize the food chain in order to boost food security. Americans in the 1880s, 50% of them were growing their own foods, but now, today, only 10th of a percent of Americans grow their own food. Urbanski explains the myriad ways we can shift our lives toward building food security and sustainable systems by embracing the nature right in our backyard. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. We talk about the climate crisis a lot on this show, and a common theme that comes up is not just that we need hope for a miracle cure, but that we need to rethink our relationship with the natural world in general. But what does that look like? Some people work to reduce their emissions through who they vote for, or where their electricity comes from, or others seek to reduce the amount of plastic they consume. Another option is to embrace nature, which actually can start right in your yard. Today I'm talking with Aaron Urbanski, whose business Earth Sculptors converts lawns into food forests, implements sustainable lawn care services, and restores diminishing wildlife habitats via sustainable local food systems. He actually even gave me a tree when I talked to him, a little sycamore tree that had a cricket in it, which is maybe the worst bug to be in a radio station. But we got him out. We got the cricket out alive, and he's, I, I hope he's safe somewhere. Anyway, here's my conversation with Aaron Urbanski. So I just talked to uh, Graham Christensen, who uh, he's he's very he's not like a scary person to talk to. He's very nice, he's yeah. very uh, personable, but he said some things that scared me, uh, <laughs> including something along the lines of there being about sixty years, sixty more years of harvests on Earth as we know it because of the cumulative effect of our poor soil management. And it's just one of those things that's sort of been like you know haunting me at night. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hear his nice voice and his nice face telling me scary things that keep <laughs> me up. Uh, but no, I mean, like really though, we're in this sort of crossroads of survival means rethinking some things about mm-hmm. our cultural relationship with land. And I wonder if we could sort of start there about sort of like the future. Uh, and basically, uh, do, you, do you have more scary things to tell me? Do you have hopeful <laughs> things? Where, where are you with all of this? Uh, I mean, I'm a realist uh, and the reality is scary, but I'm also very hopeful. Um, you know, I just uh, just try to stick to the tasks at hand uh, to find those solutions and keep moving with it. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a balance. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I imagine though, like you, you've got this tangible relationship with land, and that's come from somewhere, and it probably means you are able to contextualize a lot of what we hear, like these big scary headlines, like there's 60 harvests left. Yeah. Probably, it's different for you than it is for me as someone who talks to people who do this work, but I'm not out there in a field doing much, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe let's go all the way back then. Like, what's your relationship with soil in the natural world? How did that all start? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, when I was growing up uh, in South Omaha, there was a little woodlot near my house. And uh, I used to build tree houses over there. And I had this bully who would destroy them. So I would just, we went through this long cycle of me building them and destroying them because 
down the hill was AT&T and we dumpster dived all these like empty spool reels and pallets and built a lot of stuff. But anyway, uh, I eventually just started digging my tree forts or just digging, you know, little bunkers and uh, they're real narrow and deep and put like plywood braced with leaves and branches and everything over it. And uh, while I was in there, uh, like I kind of just discovered like, you know, the, the tree roots all around me and the smell of the soil and just all the wildness that kind of fell into it and just observing it was beautiful that's how i fell in love with the soil and um and just the earth and everything um but yeah uh that's kind of just led me to you know that uh wanting to protect the earth as my like life's mission so well it's, it's kind of like it's soil is just this bizarre thing to me and i, I feel i told Graham this i feel like a stoner when i talk about yeah. it. So it's, like, it's like this magical couple inches of you know brown stuff yeah and so much can come out of it and we mm. can destroy it and it's just i don't know like I, I i get what it is but even just trying to understand it and understand our relationship with it sometimes it's difficult for me right mm-hmm. when you're a kid like do you do you have any concept of what soil is uh I knew I knew it was alive. I knew that's like where all life emerged from. I could just, could, you know, um, just, yeah, it was just, it's always moving. And like, you know, like I remember clenching my fist and just feeling it all like kind of squirm in there, like a real healthy loam. And I was just like, and then like looking down and you just see like 10 different species of just little tiny, barely observable, you know, things, you know. And then, you know, later on getting a microscope and seeing like everything and it was cool. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's like it's kind of a cool reflection of like our you know macro level too. You know, it's got all the other things that balance it out in the same way on just a smaller level, and so it's just like another little dimension. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a kid, and you're, you're looking at dirt, and you're looking at trees and roots and all of that. What's the point where you say like eh, maybe there's maybe there's a future doing something with this? Yeah, uh, I mean, I didn't I didn't see it directly to that, but I mean, it was just the, my love for you know the earth just kind of sparked a. Uh, one thing led to another, you know, and, um, but mostly it was just like this feeling of just seeing it all being destroyed, like uh, growing up, you know, like that woodlot I loved is gone. Like it was old growth, just completely clear cut. And I see that throughout my life. I've planted so many gardens and like forests that are wiped out parking lots, you know, now, and that's kind of part of that Sisyphean struggle I've had with just like the bully, you know, just like, but, uh, yeah. So I just wanted to find a way to, you know, access land and, uh, you know, do it without money and learned a way of making money doing it. So instead of just trying to buy land, I just connected with a lot of people that, um, you know, grew to trust and cultivated their land and stuff like that. And, well, yeah. So one of the things that uh, I think leads us into this conversation is the relationship that people have with nature and with like a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people don't really think of nature, the natural world, when they're in a city at all, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's sort of like culturally ingrained. We don't necessarily, uh, you know, see that I- the as connected, interconnected, and like you know, for me, the first big step for uh, my sort of awakening to a lot of these issues was just. The concept of composting. Yeah. Uh, just the idea that I don't have to throw all these things out and that they can become fertilizer, they can become dirt. That's when I started thinking like, oh, okay, so I can see the idea of ecosystems. I can see the idea of how a lot of this is actually connected even just right here in the city. Yeah. Um, but it, like that didn't come from school, right? It didn't mm-hmm. come from, yeah. you know, the, the broad culture did not get me there. I just sort of landed there accidentally and then got obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. So like, wh- why do you think it's like, why, why is relationship to the natural world something that isn't sort of part of our everyday city culture? Well, I, th- I think that's by design. Um, uh, I think there's, uh, it's part of, you know, keeping us decoupled from nature makes us more, more obedient workers, more obedient, um, consumers, uh, but, you know, like uh, it's been going on for a long, long time, like since the dawn of civilization. I think back when food first went under lock and key, I think that's the where the division of labor began and where our um, disconnect from nature really started was agriculture. Um, it's because, uh, you know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they had to be connected. They had to know the seasons. They had to know where they would nomadically move for, you know, foods and migrate and, you know, stuff like that. But um, nowadays, you know, it's just, it's all about convenience and, you know, the globalized industrial food chain, you know, it just, it's delivered right on time. It's right there, you know, but those systems are very fragile right now. Like they're like, 
it keeps me up at night. <laughs> like it's, I, I was a produce manager at Natural Grocers for a while, and just back during those wildfires, like is it the grapes came in smelling like smoke, you know, like the the, the floods in 2019 blocked the highways, so we weren't even able. The produce section was empty, like for like a week, and I was like, okay, this is our future. Like this is not good. <laughs> so like yeah. we got to like localize the food chain in order to um, boost food security. And just, um, you know, it's it's the way it once was. I mean, um, Americans in the 1880s, 50 percent of them uh, were growing their own foods. And like by 1945, it reduced 5 percent and like just a little under half. But now today, only tenth of a percent of Americans grow their own food. So we're very dependent on our um, industrial food chain. And uh, with climate change and, you know, the pandemic's disruption of supply chain, we're seeing it. We're seeing, you know, how it's, you know, prices going up. Um, there's so much. We're so fortunate where we're at, like what we're able to grow and what I see in the future for us to be able to grow. Like uh, it's just going to get hotter and drier. Um, you know, I'm just I'm planting a lot of stuff that's growing in Texas right now and getting it to overwinter. So once winter dwindles, then we have established like pecan trees you know that you know can be the next staple for here so because everything's moving north so like corn belt it's like in canada now apples stuff mm -hmm. like that well so when you say that uh people were mostly growing their own food does that mean that like the average person grew everything they needed like they didn't have to go to a yeah a it was at all? To yeah totally self-sufficient half of people they provided for themselves and the neighbors you know not everyone was able to cultivate the land but like you know everyone was taken care of you know they just passed you know they had the food and because, um, I mean, like it was train was like their main distribution channels. So, you know, they get like the like stuff you couldn't grow in that climate, you know, but majority of the food was produced locally, like right there. So and there's, there's probably a, a less of an expectation of an option of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like the the beauty of like the, the silver lining is like uh we have the option down the road here for it to either become a jungle or a desert. And it's a matter of keeping the water in the ground. So we keep the water in the ground, we can have a jungle and then we can grow tropical food here in like in our lifetimes is what it's looking like. You know, so um, climate scientists are leaning more towards the desert. We don't want to see that. But uh, we do also are, uh, live above the Ogallala Aquifer, which is the largest aquifer in the world. So I, I foresee a lot of climate refugees coming here, too. And uh, we're going to have to be supplying food for them as well. So it's just time to start doing stuff. <laughs> you know, we've got a lot to do. You know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of planting that needs to be done. So, If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Aaron Urbanski about converting lawns into food forests and sustainable lawn care. Are you willing to rethink your mowed grass lawn? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Well, I, th I think it's a there's a big cultural change that has to happen with that, right? Because yeah. I, I don't know that a lot of people are, are at the point where they can conceptualize that things will not be the same yeah. uh, in 50 years. You know, yeah. Uh, like uh, there's there's a great line in the book White Noise by Don DeLillo mm -hmm. where there's a, an environmental disaster that's happening, and the characters are walking through the supermarket, or they're talking about going to the supermarket, mm -hmm. and uh, the mom says, "There's always extra at the supermarket," and one of the kids says, "Well, there's not always extra if you eat it all, right?" <laughs> yeah, and just like she can't conceptualize that there's not always going to be more stuff there yeah. at the supermarket. And I think that that, like, that is kind of the, the type of uh, shift in our understanding of like what does a supermarket actually mean? What is a market? Uh, that like these things are not guaranteed forever. And yeah. there's not that stability necessarily. But yeah. how do you get people to accept that and then start to move into proactive spaces like you've done? There's going to come a point where we just don't have a choice. So, um, I mean, I kind of see it as like an absolute necessity. Uh, I think, you know, um, just activating that part of us that like uh, Scott Crow calls it. Um, he's a writer. He, he called it a, ha having an emergency heart. And I kind of re really resonate with that. And it's just like I feel the emergency when I wake up. I, I nightmares about the emergency. I know what's coming. And like I've thought about this since high school. You know, it's like seeing the climate science is just horrific. And like it's a matter of our oil dependency, you know, like it's the powers that be it's uh, our culture is controlled by the powers that be so like i mean there there's to you know to a degree so like um our government really needs to take a stand and like really be stepping it up i want to see the conservation corps the civilian conservation corps being restored 
because when that mass tree planting during the Great Depression, like the largest man-made forest in the country is right here in Nebraska, you know. So like, we can do that. There are other countries are doing that. The, you know, China's green green belt initiative and stuff like that. Like in Africa, they're like putting a green belt across the Sahara. It's doable. Well, we can like you know these are carbon sinks. These are that's what's pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere. That's what could provide our food, shade. It's going to restore aquifers wherever they go. It's trees are the you know keystone species of everything that you know all life you know just can really start from there as a jump off point. So um, yeah, it, it's it's important. Just mass planting. <laughs> well, yeah, but like the people they get stuck in this culture war noise, right, with environmentalism yeah. where it just becomes yeah. this red issue or blue issue. Yeah. Instead of just like, well, this is a like a serious problem that's coming that yeah, the faster an, you address it, the easier it'll be, right? Yeah, it's an existential crisis for our species. I mean, it's beyond red or blue. It's like it's survival. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's crazy that you have to convince people to see an existential risk, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and like I said, I mean, it's just uh, everything on mainstream culture. You turn on TV, you know, every, it's just constantly, you know, barraged with like this dissonance. There's no, you know, we're just disconnected. You know, there's no. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming. It we, we, It's the cycle is going to keep turning because it's profit driven. Like, you know, like farmers are trying their best and it's profit driven, too, for them. So like those uh, shelter belts, you know, all the like when I was growing up as a kid, all those cornfields had like hedgerows. There was like always those little wood lines separating fields. It's gotten to the point now where th those are gone too. Like every square foot is being utilized to just squeak out more corn, you know, like, and, and it's just, it's leading to the collapse of so much of what was left, you know, like monarch butterflies have been listed as endangered species this year. And it's, uh, it just kills me when a client's asking me to remove milkweed <laughs> off the bushes. I'm like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's like, I'm just, I'm going to trim the bush around the milkweed and we're just going to leave it there. And if that, if that doesn't work for you, I just, I'm not your guy, you know, I, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> well, so, so to be proactive then, like what is a food security for the future look like? Yeah. Um, just doing it piece by piece in our yards, you know, just, uh. Grass is just useless. Uh, just get rid of it. Just start planting, you know, start with one tree, you know, one native tree um, and then a swale, you know, that, that collects all the rainwater. You don't have to water it once it's established, you know, and then uh, as it develops, you know, put some more stuff in like sunchokes. They're, they're so easy. And I see those as a staple in the future. Like uh, they're also known as Jerusalem artichokes and they were once a staple here. A lot of the stuff I like to plant were once staples of the, uh, Native Americans here, pre-colonization. I've been studying that all my life, and they're working. They're, re they're very resilient to climate change. Perennials in general are more resilient to volatile weather. They can handle, you know, a lot more than an annual plant ever can. So, um, And they're low maintenance. You don't have to really do much, and every year the yields grow. So, you, you know, it's just the ideal way to go. So yards are kind of this thing where I feel like Nebraskans in general like to have their lawn. They like to mow their lawn. Yeah. I don't really know why. What, <laughs> what, do you know the history of the, the lawn as just sort of green mowed mm -hmm. grass? What is it? From what I know is uh, it was a status symbol in the British Empire. Um, just putting a lawn out there was like to say I, you know, stepped up in the hierarchy, you know. So, but, uh, you know, even along with. Uh, wooden houses. Um, I think that plays a big part in where we've veered from sustainable culture. Um, before wooden houses, there was cob housing. And um, shout out to my friend Jim Tallgrass, uh, Tallgrass Hearth and Home. Uh, he does cob houses. He builds houses from the earth and straw bales and everything like that. And the nice thing about it is all that thermal mass, you don't have to have an AC unit and it stays cool. You don't have to have a lot of these energy inputs and it just regulates itself internally. So that's the way it once was, you know, and like uh, we've lost a lot of that, um, you know, with the with the status symbols, <laughs> you know. Well, so. And it's a status symbol because it's land that you don't need to farm. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. It's like, OK, we got to just surplus land to just play around on, you know, and uh, this and that. But there's um, I guarantee you, I promise you, like running through a meadow is way better than running through a lawn. Like. Just plant some prairie flowers. You can step on them. They're they're really sturdy. <laughs> like they they could just come right back. They you know they, they've buffalo are stepping on them for you know millennia. So <laughs> why 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 are people so uh, protective of the idea of having a lawn? 
uh, in the sense of green mowed grass. Yeah, I think there's a normalization bias. You just kind of like, that's what they know. You know, it's just like, that's what my dad did, grandpa did. You know, it's like, just push that mower, you know. So, like, it's, it is ingrained in our culture. And it's, it's like the most wasteful thing we could do. Like, it's, it's burning all that fuel. Everyone who's mowing is inhaling all those fumes. Everyone's getting sick from it. All that gas, all the, you know, just like the chemicals to make it green. Like, it, it's just obnoxious. And all the water, like, it's just it's horrible. Like, especially with the scarcity of water increasing, like, we need to be thinking about how we use our water. And um, putting it in the ground is the important, you know, um, collecting it with the uh, swales and just catching it and utilizing it. Uh, with lawns, it's just flat, so it just runs off into the drain. And then we have to use all that energy to clean it, you know, and, like, put it back in the water system so um the best thing to do is just collect it and uh, there's many ways to do that so so okay for somebody who maybe is interested in thinking or rethinking what their lawn looks like you'd say first step is plant a tree maybe mm-hmm. go from there if people want to start to think about turning a, a lawn into a food forest yeah what are, the, what are the first steps they might take yeah um so the first step with a food forest is you gotta you gotta get the earthworks done putting putting in a what i call a culture swale it's uh it's really big in Germany. Uh, basically, what you do is you bury logs. Logs act as a sponge to uh, collect all that rainwater, and as it breaks down, it provides fertilizer. It provides habitat for all these microbial life. It jumpstarts the soil life. It, it just builds soil immediately. So um, you get that bar- you get the logs log layer branch layer on top of it. Then you're getting like the leaf layer. Then you put the dirt on top, and you got this big berm that is graded contour to uh, to the hill. So um, it looks like a crescent shape, and it's open facing towards the, where the water's coming from. And so it catches it as it goes down, downhill. So then um, after you get that going, you want to you wanna think about your plantings, and you want to have your different uh, layers. There's seven layers to a forest. So you have your underground layers where you start with, like, the root crops and, like, the mycelial inoculations. So you can, you know, grow mushrooms down there at the, with mulch and stuff. And then you got your uh, ground cover layer, got your herbaceous layer, got your vine layer, your shrub layer, your understory, which grows under the, uh, there's like the smaller trees. And then you got the overstory, the big trees that kind of shelter everything. And uh, so I always try to make sure each one of those are present to create just maximum amounts of yield in minimum square footage. So like, you know, they all, they all kind of just can work together and help each other in different ways too. So, so for like a community that does this, uh, do they is the idea that you've got several different crops in your yard, or mm-hmm. like do are there is a maybe a more efficient way that like you you grow whatever lettuce, and then the people next door grow something else, and you sort of all trade, or what, what's yeah. like a vision for it? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I like to plant densely, but others, you know, sometimes it's easier just to have you know a little bit more row cropping. Um, with annuals, you got to practically, I mean, it's just like, it's a lot easier with, you know, potatoes, just putting them all down in like a, I like to do at least do a swale with my rows. So that way it's still collecting rainwater. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you trade, do, ho- do however you feel, but, uh, diversity is the most important thing really, cause it's going to help build, uh, soil quality. Um, and if you get the, get the, harmony of it right it, it's just it just sings it's just it's amazing because like it's amazing how many different plants can grow in just a small space if you have different kinds of plants that work with each other you know like uh the famous one uh would be the three sisters the the, the one that is like a really good start um corn squash and beans and so like the squash works as the ground cover layer beans are the vine layer corn's like a little I guess, I don't know, like shrub layers. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's it's like, it's a, it works as a trellis for the beans. And then the beans are nitrogen fixers for the corn and squash. And the squash keeps the water in the ground by covering it. So it's re- very important to cover the ground. Um, I like to use a lot of mulch and uh, cardboard, putting that down. And uh, cardboard works as a conduit for the mycelial networks. It's incredible just seeing those little white strings just move right through the cardboard under the soil as the soil builds and that's like nature's internet. I'm sure if you've heard like how it, like a lot of people, you know, it's just, it's, it's just so cool. Like they, um, mycorrhizae connect to the root tips of all these different, uh, plants, mostly like trees and shrubs. And it'll send messages like literally like hormones to like let trees downwind from a wildfire, know to drop their leaves 
or even like share water or nutrients. Um, it's, it's facilitated the health of forest, you know, time immemorial. So that's, yeah, that's one of those things where I, I it's like dirt for me where I, I can, I understand the words you're saying, but it's tough for me to totally comprehend it. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Like how intelligent are these things? What does that, like, yeah. how, how, what does that even mean to say it's well, intelligent? Well, personally, I think they're like aliens. It's crazy. <laughs> like it's like the spores exist. They're, they're, they're out in orbit right now, a sub uh, low earth orbit. Like spores can survive d- deep space. So like it's theorized they might that mushrooms might have just came in on a comet. So like uh, it's cool. They they really brought a lot of harmony to you know the ecosystem and uh, you know it's like a really close balance between plant and animal and it's like a really good food source. Um, it's really easy to go down the rabbit hole with uh, mushrooms. It's it's so there's so much to it. But uh, I absolutely love just love my edible mushrooms. Uh, and that's why I got into the arborist business a little bit, despite my inner Lorax. Because uh, I, I, throughout my life, I've tapped into the waste stream, I call it, because, you know, we're, we're very wasteful. <laughs> and like uh, growing up, you know, every industry I've worked in, I've seen just immense amounts of waste that I, I knew, you know, what it could be used for. And with, with tree work, um, somebody else is going to cut it down anyway if it's sick or if it's going to fall in the house or if they don't want it. So I at least get those logs because... I need fresh cut logs in order to inject the spawn for it to become and take as a edible mushroom log. So that's kind of what led me there. And uh, yeah, basically you just get a fresh cut log before 30 days is up, drill holes in it about every six inches in a grid pattern and just small holes. And then you inject it with the spawn. There's this little tool you can get uh, through Norspore.com. And uh, yeah, so then uh, you inject it and and then you seal it with a little wax set it down, set it, forget it. Year later, it's fruiting, you know? And then um, in the meantime, or after they're, uh, after they're inoculated and you bring them back into like a swale, you put them in the ground and then they're collecting that rainwater again. And then they're pushing out a meal every time it rains, you know, just right there, you know, it's so. So you got into this stuff. Uh, what, like when did you discover the magic of mushrooms? Oh, <laughs> um, I had a girlfriend. <laughs> she was a she was an amateur mycologist, and uh, I was seeing you know her builder like just crazy, just amazing laboratory, selling to restaurants. Just uh, yeah, it's it's just it's incredible, just how easy it, you know. In Syria, they're survive they're surviving siege by just growing mushrooms in their basement. You know, plastic bags with wood chips and spawn. That's how they got their protein. Like you know, living in a war zone. Uh, mushrooms are the future of food. Um, I highly recommend this book, uh, How Mushrooms Can Save the World by Paul Stamets. I think that was what really was led me down the mushroom path. Um, it's There's so many solutions to the industrial world's problems with mushrooms. Uh, oyster mushrooms can break down petroleum. It's like the only thing that like uh, you, could just, you could put it in a burlap sack, the spawn, put it downstream of a culvert of a gas station, it'll catch all that petroleum and break it down. The food's poisoned, but it breaks it down into a uh, more biodegradable substance that's instead of millions of years, it'll take you know thousands to break down. So, but yeah. What stops people from doing that on a big scale? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's happening. Uh, it's just, it's, I don't know why it's not scaling up faster. Uh, it should be. <laughs> Is it just because it sounds goofy to talk about mushrooms in this serious way, or what's the holdup? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I'm asking the same question. I, you know, there's a lot of times where people hire me. They're like, "You're like the only sustainable landscaper I know." There's there's a few others now, but like, yeah, it's just like in California. You know, I I was reading about it on the internet years ago. I was like, "Oh yeah, that's a good idea. I'm gonna go that way." And like, but yeah, we're really behind here. Like it's. <laughs> It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I imagine one of the holdups too, like somebody hires you maybe or they're just thinking about turning their lawn into a food forest. And one of the things that I imagine is an issue is, you know, you work all day. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't feel like you've got a ton of energy to go farm after work or something like that. So like, yeah. what, what's the actual workload for a, a food forest lawn? Yeah, uh, that's the beauty of it. It's really low maintenance. Um, cardboard, you know, it's the access of that weed mat. And then every year you just lay that on with another, like a lasagna, you know, just keep layering cardboard mulch, cardboard mulch every year. And the weeds don't really get through. And then uh, the, other, the only th- thing you do is got to water to establish it. And uh, that's about all there is to it. It's a harvest. It's really the, the biggest work involved after that. Um, you know, it's a big investment up front, you know, and then after that, it's, it's there. It's there for you, you know. So 
Um, the yield just increases every year. So I know it's going to depend on the size of your lawn and your food forest, but like how, what's, what's the amount of time it takes to do a lawn harvest? Oh, um, it's, I mean, for me, it's just like, it's kind of like passive. I just go forage every day a little bit here, there. Like this time of year is real busy because all the fruits, you know, they're all setting. So like got a ton of pears, ton of apples to go harvest. Um, the nuts are dropping. Everything's just got to come in around the same time. Mm -hmm. Winter squash, all that. So yeah, um, real busy time of year, but like it's worth it because then you stock up for winter. So, you know, get all that, you know, preserved and dried and yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think like the person who says, I don't know if it's worth it because I just don't have enough time. Mm. You're thinking like, all right, how much work am I gonna, going to have to put in to do the harvest now? Uh, yeah. And, like yeah. What, do, what do they actually have to do? Yeah. I mean, like it just depends on how how in, how invested you want to be in your time. Because I, I mean, for me, it is like the most important thing, like connecting with the earth and like um, the uh, phytonutrients from like a freshly picked food is way more nutritious than even on a grocery store shelf. Same fruit, you know, um, just the timing of when it was harvested. Fresh cut lettuce, you eat that right after you cut it, you're getting like multiples more nutrients than just right out of the grocery store. Um, nutrient density is a big uh, problem uh, with our soils being depleted. So building soils at home, you can get more food out of, you know, more concentrated soils. So you don't have to eat as much to get maintain what you need. And uh, I mean, like time, you know, it really it's it's relative, you know, like for me, I make time for it because it's, it's a priority, you know, mm -hmm. so. I'm talking with Aaron Urbanski about embracing nature right in our yard through edible landscaping, sustainable lawn care services, and building food security. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember, there's a backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. Nebraskans love their lawns, but the climate crisis provides a chance for us to rethink our relationship with nature, starting with those lawns, with our yards. Today, I'm talking with Aaron Urbanski, whose business Earth Sculptors converts lawns into food forests, implements sustainable lawn care services, and restores diminishing wildlife habitats via sustainable local food systems. Here is the rest of our conversation. 
you, do you feel like there's a, a movement for this here? Are there people mm-hmm. who yeah. are moving toward it in like a big enough way that it's oh, just yeah. going to become normalized? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, farms I just kind of see like in the city that are really taken off, and um, there's a lot of people doing it in other ways too. Like, uh, you know, shout out to Free Farm Syndicate. They uh, it's um, they do a lot of uh, farming on just public or land. Like people give them you know lots or leases in. They just cultivate that land heavily, and then they, you know, just give out the surplus to people who want it. Um, usually, marginalized communities. So, yeah, I... <laughs> public land's another one. Like uh, sometimes I wonder, even just like the the grass on the side of like the highway or whatever on Dodge Street, mm-hmm. you know, like at the interstate. You know, why why do they mow that? Why is it just grass? Why yeah. do you do even just like rewilding part of it? Right. I just think of all the lobbyists and you know Dupont, Monsanto, Syngenta, all of them. You know they. They dump so many chemicals on those medians. I watch them spray that. You know, like Roundup is in every mother's breast milk, like throughout the world now. It doesn't break down. It's been proven to cause cancer. They're still selling it here. It's banned in most of the other world. And like, (laughs) so I mean, I think it's a lot of kickbacks and a lot of government, you know, you know, shoulder rubbing. So. Yeah, forever chemicals. That's another thing that's terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Is there a solution to any of that? Yeah. Mushrooms help? Apparently, I, I saw some article about the PFAs. They found something, another chemical that'll destroy that chemical. But yeah, I mean, that's, but yeah, mushrooms, yeah, mushrooms are definitely a more organic route for destroying a lot of stuff with petroleum, like I said. And uh, yeah, they, they'll just, I don't know, they're just really great regulators. There's a lot of, uh, just read the book, How Mushrooms Save the World. There's so <laughs> much in there about how they do that. And they, they destroy a lot of forever chemicals. Um, but yeah, uh, that's one way of doing it. But the problem is, it's like you can't really eat it. So, Doing that on a residential basis, you don't really want to be trying to collect. I mean, so I've had people who wanted to like block off the Roundup runoff from their neighbors uphill. So I put like mushroom swales that they just don't eat because mm-hmm. um, then it's just at least breaking it down. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So like as far as how to do some of that, you, you use what is it? Homemade herbicides and pesticides? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as far as uh, the herbicides go, um, just get a high acidity vinegar, put it in one of those spray pumps. A um, little Epsom salt, that actually helps because that's usually a soil deficiency. The calcium magnesium is depleted in our soils. So pioneer plants, as they say, are first responder plants like a dandelion. It's responding to a soil disturbance. So they're there to cover the ground, right? So if there's like an open, bare ground, plants, mostly what we call weeds, are trying to cover that gap so the soil doesn't die further. So if you put the soil nutrients it's needed, a dandelion doesn't show up if there's enough calcium magnesium in the soil. So putting the Epsom salt in there, um, a little dish soap helps it stick to whatever you're trying to kill off. And then you can dilute it with a little water. But yeah, 20, 30% high acidity vinegar is the main component of that. Um, but yeah, you can look up the recipe online. It's, it's all over. Um, and then as far as pesticides go, uh, there's a lot of creative ways just for each solution there's an organic, or for, for each problem there's an organic solution. Uh, whether it be bats, um, marigolds, neem oil. You put said it, bats? Yeah, bats. How, I, do you, how do you utilize bats? Uh, you put up a bat box and invite them into your yard, and then they're eating all the mosquitoes and uh, other stuff flying around. And it's just, yeah, they'll eat their weight in insects every night. So, like, they do a lot. Uh, peanut farmers in the south have had huge turnarounds in going organic because of bats. Um, they, they're just – because it fertilizes the fields on top of it. So it's just – Converting a problem into fertilizer, you know. So, uh, yeah, same with like uh, Japanese beetles. They're like they're like the bane of a farmer's existence out here. Uh, my friend discovered just putting those uh, Japanese beetle pheromones inside of the chicken coop. They just fly in. The chickens eat them, and then they're gone. <laughs> you know. Wow. So like, yeah, you just uh, the pheromone traps never used to work because they would just attract them, and then they wouldn't all go in the trap, and then like. They'd just be eating the crops anyway. But if you put them, move the chicken coop away from the crops, put the trap in the, you know, and then they just eat them. <laughs> Do you have chickens? No, but uh, coming up next year, uh, I'm working on uh, pigeons. I'm building a dove coat right now. Uh, I'm really going to get into the pigeon rabbit hole now. So uh, I see that as like the future for a sustainable food source. Uh, I know my vegan friends are cringing right now, <laughs> but it, it really is. Uh, uh, thousands of years we've been it's like the earliest domesticated uh animal that we know of and like the these ancient dove coats all over the world are just gorgeous and they just i, I think really 
harken back to a time of sustainability that uh, we've lost. So. so where do you land on the eating meat argument? Because I know yeah. like part of it is people say, I don't want an animal to get hurt, but mm-hmm. it seems like animals are going to get hurt through farming yeah. right, in farmland. I, mean, I, I think um, I, I lived on the Rosebud Reservation for a week and I, I learned from uh, Native Americans about like, you know, just the circle of life, like food chains and everything. Like um, there is a lot of honor and you know, thanking a deer for its life before you lose the arrow, you know, and like respecting the animal and thanking it for its life and its energy that's giving it to you. It's a very sacred um, exchange. And then like what we have now is CAFOs, you know, confined animal feeding operations. And (laughs) it is a hellish world over there. You know, it's like that's the reason we have these E. coli outbreaks and everything else, you know, because they're just just walking around their muck and they got, you know, it's just – being injected with antibiotics and it's just this, the feedback loops are spiraling. If they just allowed to graze and, you know, being pasture raised and stuff like that and having the space and within reason to scale. And that's what it's all about as far as localizing it too, because the animals are going to be a lot healthier when they're not confined like that. And then just, you know, everybody has a little bit of what they need and it works that way. So in other words, there is an ethical way oh, absolutely, to eat meat yeah. in an unethical yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, I, I was vegan when I was married, <laughs> and uh, I, it, it really was nice. I mean, I understand it, I was especially for the the animal rights reason. And, like, you know, I, I've seen, you know, all the horrific things, you know, and, like, milk is disgusting to me now, but, I, you know, I grew up on it. But, you know, like, stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, um, I, it's just something I haven't really uh, – yeah, I, I, I've grown out of it, I guess, is what I'd say. I mean, I, I still see it's important to reduce our our uh, carbon footprints. And there are ways of doing that, especially through, you know, raising it yourself. I mean, I think you take on a lot of the, uh, you know, the responsibility of that then. So. Well, so another element that you've talked about is wildlife, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think yeah. kind of makes sense as a segue here. So you restore wildlife habitats. And does that mean like in neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, uh, all neighborhoods are wildlife. The lot wild always been there it's just a matter of how much we let into that bubble you know um let's just say some neighborhoods are more diverse than others so, <laughs> um yeah so uh, the wildlife's always there it's you know either spiders ants it's just what well, how much of it are we going to allow to be there and uh for me let everything go you know it's 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 the way it's supposed to be you know um what can become a, or seem like a problem like uh, there's always another component to the ecosystem you add to balance it out and that's that's the way to go about it so what what does like a a wildlife friendly neighborhood look like um (laughs) i can think of a few neighborhoods around here i feel like are more wildlife friendly you know like uh, i live in gifford park and i just i love it it's just there's so many small farms around the area you see all types of fun stuff at night the bats come out every night anywhere you go um you know stuff like that and there's just, uh, you know, the butterfly, everything, you know, just all the stuff that's supposed to be there is there, um, you know, and then there's like the opposite of that. And I've seen I've seen the uh, contrast even within a neighborhood where like I've got a client out in Westo and like he's got this jungle going. It's just gorgeous. And then like as far as you can see over the horizon, just like flat, sterile lawns around him and they all hate him or whatever. But he's. He's starting something. He's like, it's he's slowly like kind of letting the wildness in for everybody else. And they're like, you know, that's actually a pretty good idea. That'd be not really nice to have like a ton of raspberries and not have to push the mower around or hire someone to push the mower around, you know, like, yeah. so. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Aaron Urbanski, whose business Earth Sculptors converts lawns into food forests, implements sustainable lawn care services, and restores diminishing wildlife habitats via sustainable local food systems. Do you love mowing your lawn? Are you willing to rethink the nature in your backyard? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Well, I think like people have uh, – there's a relationship with like raccoons or foxes or something mm-hmm. where it's scary right? yeah. if you just come from a normal lawn sort mm-hmm. of culture. Yeah. But what, what would be the, the, I think, the way to you know, coexist? Yeah. I think there's a lot of mythos to you know, stuff being scary. Foxes, I mean, you know, coyotes, everyone's like, oh, God, a coyote, I see it on next door. Like, everyone's tracking the coyote running around the fox. They're, they don't bother anyone, really. I mean, a small dog occasionally, that's terrible. They just, you know, just keep an eye on the dog. And um, the worst I've seen is, like, as far as the wildness, uh, my friend, I hate to laugh, but she, she just got a teacup chihuahua, 
And she let it out and this owl swooped down uh, and just like took it and was like, that's really crazy and really sad, but it's also kind of beautiful because it's like that owl is just like just doing its thing. It's a, it's an owl, you know? So it's like, wow, those did not see that coming. You know, just. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a sphinx cat and we always joke that like he's completely helpless. And <laughs> yeah. if we let him out, uh, if we, there's a cabin we go to sometimes we're always like, yeah, that, something's good. Just going to swoop him up one yeah, of these days. Just the more domesticated the animal, the more vulnerable they are, you know, like. Turkeys that are farmed, they, they'll drown looking up at the rain. <laughs> like, so, wow. So, yeah, I, I tend to try to lean more towards the wildness instead of the, you know, domesticated. You know, we're domesticated, and I feel like the more sedentary we get, you know, the less intelligent yeah. we get. We, we definitely <laughs> uh, are doing our version of looking up at the rain and drowning. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just like we see the hot house, you know, getting hotter and we're just like, oh, this is gas. <laughs> just like, What's this do? <laughs> well, so like some, some tips that maybe like if somebody wants to be more friendly to their wildlife and they want to take some baby steps maybe toward mm-hmm. their lawn, like what, what are some first things they might do? Like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. does that mean like rewilding an area, leaving yeah, a little yeah. part unmowed or something? Like, yeah. Start with like leaving a little wood pile in the backyard. Just let like the little things start, you know, just uh, get, get a place for bugs to live, you know. Bugs in general are beneficial. Like overall, most of them are good. And when there's bad bugs around, it's usually because there's not the good bugs to eat them. So leaving a wood pile does wonders for a yard. Um, and then you can just start with uh, putting a little insect hotel where like the solitary bees can live, um, the, the pollinators. And then you can put a little butterfly box. Uh, but, uh, the butterflies like to go in there. Same with owls. There's owl boxes. You can put bat roosts up. Um, you know, the doves eat the weed seeds and stuff, so they'll help kind of manage the garden. It depends on where you want to go with it. Like, uh, you know, some people are bird watchers. Some people, you know, they want to invite, you know, even the coyotes in. There's ways to do that, too. So, you know, uh, groundhogs, they, they're everywhere. Everyone's always talking about how bad they are, but, like, they're, they're adorable. Like, <laughs> and, like, you know, like, I let them in my garden. I just plant more. Just, you know, just, like, I, I realize what they like to eat. And I'll just plant more of that, and they just don't eat it all. So. Yeah, I've, we've got a couple of groundhogs, and my cats are just obsessed. They you know, inside, <laughs> yeah. they go up and they watch it. Yeah, like, what yeah. in the world is that thing? <laughs> yeah, they're cute. Uh, I they do a lot of good too. Um, you know, just uh, stuff like that. What uh, does a groundhog do that's good? Just for anyone who doesn't know, mm, uh, the burrowing aerates the soil. That's one thing. Um, fertilizers. You know, everything that's living is producing fertilizer. Um, not really sure. I mean, they don't really eat so much uh, pests in the garden as like other animals that we like to invite that are wild, like the bats and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think being cute does go a long way to people's I tolerance. Mean, I mean, for me, it's just like I'm sure there's something I don't know. You know, just like they're doing so, – they're, they're part of the dance of life, you know, and therefore – you know, let them in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Well, yeah. So it, it seems like there there is a way to sort of think about coexisting, uh, whether that's through uh, trying to provide space or not completely eradicate any place for wildlife to exist. Mm-hmm. And then also to do food for us. And so like it, it, it's very different. And like a, the, what does the world look like if the, the same amount of people who now have kind of these wild spaces or these wild lawns, uh, mm-hmm. if we have like the same proportion now where it's like most people have sort of standard mode grass and a couple people maybe have this wild space. If we were to switch that, that's a very different looking neighborhood, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. like, do, do you see that as like, say 20 years from now, it's just sort of like odd to have a, a mowed lawn? Yeah, that'd be beautiful. I mean, I think 20 years from now, it's going to be hard to grow anything. So like, let's get the stuff that can provide shade and, you know, keep the ground, keep the soil alive. Lawns are already dying right now. I mean, like, there's, unless you want to pay that huge water bill to keep it looking green, you know? Constantly, people are like, oh, man, my yard used to be so good. Now it's, like, yellow. And it's like, hmm, I wonder what's changed here. <laughs> so, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's, there's one major factor. It's just getting hotter and drier. Yeah. So um, you know, just try to respond in the ways that can help pr- – um, keep it, you know, a little cooler and wet. <laughs> so, like, maybe uh, this is where we can come back to the beginning, then, which mm-hmm. is, you know, Graham scaring me about the future. Mm-hmm. So, do you feel like there's momentum in a way that will change some of the trajectory of the scary potential future? Yeah, I, yeah. We just you just got to start, you know, start in your own yard for sure, and you know, we got to really be working towards something on a macro level, big scale, quickly. Um, I, I mean, it's it's just a matter of getting it in the ground. There's so much like you get the you get these wild native plants in the ground. They're going to take care of it from there. 
You know, the sunchokes are incredible how expansive they are. And these are the little potatoes in the ground that look like sunflowers up top. And like the more you harvest them, the more they grow. And it's just like they'll spread. And you could easily get a little sunchoke grove going and it's absolutely beautiful. And you can just run around in it and it'll just grow right back. And you can make your own little paths, like a little labyrinth if you want. And you don't have to do anything to it. And it's produ- producing nectar for the you know pollinators, shade, uh, food. And it's what more could you need? <laughs> so. <laughs> so for people who want to know more about what you do, are there any other uh, sort of services or things that you want people to be aware of that you're involved with? Yeah. I, I mean, I do, I do a lot. Um, I'm a, sort of an artist when it comes to landscape. Um, so, I mean... I'm always doing something new. Everything's very seasonal. It's just intrinsic to the industry. So uh, right now, I'm kind of just winding down with mowing. I want to get out of mowing so bad. It's just getting there. But uh, I'm winding down with mowing and uh, getting into more into mulching uh, as it cools off, getting ready to put stuff to bed basically for winter. Um, And uh, a lot of tree trimming is coming up. Uh, as uh, it gets cooler, they go to hibernate, and then it's it's better for the trees then. Um, and then we got like uh, tree planting, obviously, is the, uh, this is the time to do it in the shoulder seasons when it's cooler, so spring and uh, spring and fall. So um, we got that, and um, yeah, I mean, it's just there's so much I do. It's it's hard to list it all. Um, uh, if you just want to check out my website, uh, uh, earthsculptors.com, I'll eventually get that up on there and list the services out. It's better to see my portfolio on uh, Instagram. It's at uh, earth underscore sculptors. And that kind of looks show you what I'm up to. Um, I do consultations. Uh, give you a first hour free. I really want to help people get started. So, yeah, just over the phone, we can talk. I can help you out with whatever you're problem solving or where you want to start, specifically with your yard. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much to do always. Um, so, yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed getting to pick your brain and to sort of see what your vision is. I think it's been great. I definitely wish you the best of luck with your pigeons. Yeah. Thank going you. Forward and everything else. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Today. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and I want to make a shout out to my children, uh, Talon and Tula. Daddy loves you. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Thanks again. Yep. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.